Welcome to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, where we talk about the latest in financial literacy education. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, where we provide no-cost programs and free online resources that help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. You can find our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Please do rate and review us. And if you have any questions, you can get in touch with us at financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. Today I'm speaking with Lee Zhang, one of the principal architects of CPA Canada's international award-winning financial literacy program. Lee's been with the program since its beginning and brings a wealth of experience in program design and insightful thoughts on the changing landscape of financial education and financial well-being. Today we're going to take a peek into CPA Canada's program, our development philosophy, and what we've learned that we hope will help other financial literacy educators in the development and delivery of effective programs. Hi, Lee. Hi. So we've been working together for almost two years now. I think it's really good for us to step back and have a little bit of conversation about our program, where it came from, um, how we've grown it, and where you see it going. Great. Looking forward to it. Okay, so why don't you just take us back a little bit in time and tell us about the roots of the CPA liter Financial Literacy Program. Going to age myself here a little bit. Um, okay, so since I'm going to say the dawn of time, which would have been 2010, uh, we started with actually an article in our professional magazine that really talked about financial literacy as this emerging area. And what we didn't expect was this groundswell of support from our members who said, this is exactly something we need to be involved in, that this is something that we can be adding to our communities and we see a real need within the Canadian landscape and the public and in terms of how the economy's going, uh, preparing for things like retirement or savings, they really thought that this was something that was critical to the success of Canada as well as uh, the generations after. What do you think it was about that article that resonated so deeply? I think we talked about a lot of different aspects. One were some of the, the current challenges. Uh, you know, I mean, 2010, we were still just getting out of a fairly, you know, tough economic time. And I think, you know, we were starting to think about, well, if, you know, retirement wasn't a for sure deal, you know, whether or not... Um, uh, pensions were changing. Like there's so many things that were uh, quite volatile at the time, and I think that really resonated with our members specifically because you're looking at a group of professionals who money is really their specialty, right? It's understanding uh, business, it's understanding um, a strategy, it's understanding personal finances, etc. So they're really what I would say kind of on the front lines of really kind of having the pulse of the challenges Canada could potentially face and how we're going to mitigate those risks. So we're picturing ourselves back in 2010. Freedom 55 is no longer sort of everybody's assumed dream. Uh, people are seeing things changing. We have our members who are financial subject matter experts, so they would be seeing this at the front edge and they're responding to this for you. 
So how did you react to that? And what did that, what did that look like as you tried to capture that kind of enthusiasm and that need to participate and make a difference? We knew that our members were very involved in community work. So whether that be in uh, service-related organizations or boards on nonprofits or their local food bank, they were really passionate about giving back uh, in, in the communities that where they uh, lived and worked. And so when we looked at what we were going to do with financial literacy within the profession, we really wanted to see how we were going to add value uh, and really kind of make a difference in this space based on the expertise of the profession and, again, that willingness to give back. So how did you go about taking that idea? So you have this idea that... that um, there's a need for more financial education. You see a groundswell of willingness from members to participate in that. So what happened next in terms of how do you get from there to a program? So actually in my office, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed, there's a giant binder uh, from that period. And what we did is we decided, well, let's not recreate the wheel here. Let's see what everybody else has done. And so we looked at what our counterparts in the US had, were doing or had done. Uh, we looked at different uh, accounting bodies in other parts of the world. We looked at organizations in other parts of the world and even Canada that uh, had started to dabble in or was beginning this journey as well to see what it already existed. Because really at the foundation, if we could build the partnerships and leverage some of uh, the great work that was already being done, uh, we wanted to be able to complement that or to expand it rather than, let's say, go off and design our own program. And then also when it comes to the international piece, what can we learn from other organizations who have done this or uh, who had um, embarked on a, on a kind of similar journey? Uh, and from there, uh, we put together what I uh, lovingly um, call our Financial Literacy League. Uh, and they were our very early adopters who really put up their hand. And, and we're talking about probably 12 or 14 individuals. Um, and uh, we brought them all in and we had these very in-depth conversations about, okay, well, what are some of the challenges that Canadians are facing? Uh, and what are some of the issues that we really want to be talking about? So this Financial Literacy League, let, let me be clear of about superheroes. this. Of superheroes. Of yes, superheroes. Okay, so absolutely. These would have been CPAs who responded to your article, who uh, somehow put their hand up and said, I want to be passionate about financial literacy. So how that came about, this group, is we did, after this article received uh, such, again, a groundswell of support, we, um, we, we hosted a, a couple of presentations to talk about financial literacy, where that could possibly fit in the profession. Um, and we invited uh, probably about three or four groups of 40 to 50 people. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, very, it's very easy to identify the ones that are really, really keen and so what we did with those individuals is we invited them back in a smaller group setting to really talk about, talk about the nuts and bolts. Because there's a very different expertise when it's someone to say, I want to be involved and I want to participate, but when something is ready. Versus someone who says, no, I really believe in this cause and I'm ready to talk about 
the really detailed pieces to exactly what someone, a student in grade four is going to need to know versus someone who's 10 years from retirement versus someone who's 40 years from retirement and what those challenges are. So this League of Superheroes, and we actually, you know, made these, uh, we had capes made for them. It was a, it's a, it was a big deal. I'm pretty sure there are still orange capes uh, laying, laying around here. Um, but they were really the individuals who, who helped us on this path uh, that we are on now. And we really wanted to invite uh, those, and I'm going to say thought leaders at the time, because they were the ones who were really willing to pull, put in the work. They reviewed binders and binders of other programs to say what they liked and what they didn't like. And then from there, we built or we started to build the program we have today. So how did you and your League of Superheroes go about identifying where you wanted to start? Um, you know, it's, it's, you make a, a really good point about lots of people are willing to help and put their hands up, etc. when you've got something ready to run with. But for this group of people that really wanted to start, how did you, how did you identify the basics? Because I think that's something that other people looking at their programs, etc., can, can really learn from. It's really starting with the most imminent issues. That's where we started. We started with what are the biggest challenges in the next five years and who are they? And so from there, we decided that we were going to start with an adult program, which was the foundational eight, which we still have today. And what we did with those is we decided that we were going to build them on a spectrum. So from someone who is just starting out, probably maybe buying their first home or starting a family, uh, to someone who was in the later stages who are thinking about uh, the afterlife and estate planning. And we were really kind of trying to cover that, that journey and that stage of life. Because again, at the time, you know, retirement was a big thing. A lot of individuals lost quite a bit of their retirement uh, from the, the 2008 situations. Uh, plus, you know, we, again, we have all these pension changes. That was really the time we started talking about it because, again, a lot of those defined contribution pensions had lost significant amount of, uh, of money as well. And now companies were really trying to figure out, well, how are they going to fund that moving forward? So a lot of change was happening along those lines. And so we thought, okay, um, if we're going to build a program as a starting point, uh, who are the individuals and what are their immediate challenges? Because we know with education, you have to be ready to receive it. So if I am uh, pro graduating from post-secondary education, my first thought is not about, well, how am I going to retire at 55, 65, who knows, maybe tomorrow at 72. But I'm not thinking about that. But I am probably thinking about, you know, landing my first job, understanding my paycheck, uh, how do I save money, right? What is a budget, et cetera, or starting a family? So we really wanted to kind of capture those specific moments. And we, we realized that that is the perfect time to start and also the perfect uh, audience to start with. Okay. So did you see as you started developing these eight uh, basic programs, um, did you see common themes emerging or did you see um, did you test out different formats of delivery or what, what was running through your head as you were trying to take that step to take these moments and turn them into really accessible programming? 
Well, I mean, there's two parts to our programs. Um, one, one half is really uh, how the audience was going to interact or learn. The other piece is because we had decided, you know, we have all these uh, members uh, um, in the profession that were going to deliver them for us, we needed to provide in a format that was going to support them in their delivery. So the reason that our program is so successful is because everything that we do keeps both of these audiences in mind and both of them are equally important uh, when we talk about how our uh, in-person sessions are delivered. So the first issue we had to tackle on the consumer end of things was this idea of this is education, and so we're talking about a group of individuals. Now, each individual, as the word would imply, is different. So if we are talking about savings, as an example, um, everybody's value proposition is a bit different. So I could be saving for uh, a car because I need to get from A to B, maybe I need it for work, etc. Someone else might be wanting to understand how to save for their first home. So to understand where people's values lie and to be able to give them uh, usable and useful information that's relevant to them, we had to figure out a way to make it personable without um, having kind of these one-on-one -on -one presentations. So what we decided from that perspective is all of our presentations have built-in activities that they either did individually or with a partner. And really it was to say, okay, so we've taught you A, B, and C, but how is that relevant to you and why do you care? So now you're making it an emotional piece. You're making it about yourself. So now I understand if I want to save, what's that goal and how do I budget for that goal? And now I'm incentivized for it because that is fundamentally where I want to be or what I value. Now, on the flip side, when we talk about our volunteers, it was understanding what was going to make it easy for them to deliver this over and over and over again for, and across the country. Okay? So again, we also have to keep that perspective of um, that our program is national yeah, in mind as well. And I'll give you an example on that after. So... With our members, you know, they're all area experts, uh, but the question then becomes, um, how do we prepare them so that they didn't have to kind of recreate the wheel every time? And it's this idea of, well, if we were going to create a, a presentation, we want to build in uh, notes. Uh, and these notes are meant for our volunteers to uh, use uh, and understand all the different topics they were to cover. However, of course, we always encourage them to um, personalize that information, to change it around because everybody's voice is a little bit different. But we also want to make sure as a national program, the quality and the information delivered is consistent, uh, whether you're in Medicine Hat or you're in St. John's. Uh, etc. So one of the learnings you're saying is that when you choose your examples, it's really important to recognize the, the, the breadth and complexity of Canada, that we don't have a single economy, that we actually have multiple regional economies. Um, so make sh that ability to adapt and to use examples that people relate to. How did you decide on the format? Um, because, you know, it, it is interesting that, that um, you, you know, your point about when you're, when you're developing this kind of voluntary programming where you're really catching people in learning moments. So, we, you know, the, the, 
the programs that we offer are all offered at no cost. The people who show up are the people who are interested in that particular topic. So they're kind of self-selecting. How did you develop the format? Because we now have a, a, a very tested format that we know works. It's basically a one hour format, 45 minutes for presentation, 15 minutes for questions for adult programming. Our, our children's programming is quite different. Uh, how did you come on that? How did you test it? And how did you figure out that that was the right format? Well, we did do a lot of research, and in the early days, um, all of our programs are actually based on uh, fairly extensive research with different demographics. Now, the format itself, we really looked at a lot of other programs in terms of what worked and what didn't. And so what we felt made sense was having these kind of really bite-sized pieces, because there, were pro there are programs that exist that are four hours, three days, um, and, and when you're talking about something that can be very difficult for many people to discuss, we wanted to make sure that uh, it would be actionable. And so we didn't necessarily want to throw everything in the kitchen sink at them at the same time. It was this idea that we wanted to be more focused uh, and have them understand that these are changes they could make right away to, again, better their, their financial situation. Um, and so this is why we had kind of built the program in that format, which is, which, which is with the PowerPoint and notes, because we also needed to, again, support the other side, which would be our, our CPAs. 2010 was actually quite early uh, in the history of, of um, financial education for, for um, consumer financial education. Um, today, it's quite an active field. We see uh, behavioral economists really in a big way. You're looking back at 2010. Um, that's very, it's really relatively early. How, how different was it back then and what kinds of programs were you looking at? Well, if we look back that, at that time, the American Institute of uh, CPAs had um, a version of it. They called it their mobilization kit. It was very much kind of a, uh, a kit that uh, American CPAs uh, could take and use if they wanted to present um, financial literacy topics generally in schools. Um, now, you got to remember, though, we started the journey in 2010, but we didn't actually launch the program until 2013. So it took us three years to figure out what we really wanted to do before we said, this is the path forward. So we spent those three years really kind of taking that time to understand not only the topic itself and the resources that were out there, but also adult learning in general, right? Because there are those um, kind of... Uh, nuggets and science-based um, research that really talked about how we can really maximize on, um, on adult learning to make it the most effective. So we know that CPAs were very keen to do this. Um, they, they responded uh, in a really unanticipated way to that initial article. Um, I know that, that getting volunteers was a very, very easy thing to do in terms of people expressing the, the willingness to get out and do things. Um, what was the initial reaction to, the, to the, those first eight courses that you took out? How did the public respond to them? Well, 
So, I mean, our program has changed in in the last six years from our initial launch um, because the, the, the original idea was that we were going to create, much like what the AICPA did, these, you know, standalone uh, presentations that our members could take in the communities because they were already there, right? They were already active with their local organizations and to take those into the communities and, and start kind of spreading that news very organically. Uh, but what we what we did find was that most of our members really wanted uh, us to make that connection for them. And so what had happened really was that we had all this very keen interest, but not that many, and, and some do, not that many CPAs at the time was comfortable to start that conversation with organizations. Uh, there was a handful, and I would say anywhere between you know 10 to 15%. Um, but as time went on, we realized that what we were missing is that we needed to actually do the outreach to a lot of community organizations to say, hey, here is something that's provided at no cost, uh, and you're, you know, you're going to get a, a professional speaker who's going to come in and talk about these different issues that you can pick a la carte. Um, and so we started building out that side um, of the program, but we did start a little later because initially that wasn't the program design. So how do you collect feedback on the, um, on the sessions? Well, uh, when we first started, I mean, evaluations is very important for any program. Um, and I'm of the opinion that uh, if you don't count score, you can't win. Uh, and <laughs> that's, that's, again, um, uh, a personal philosophy of mine. But uh, so what we did in early days, and I'll, I'll kind of give you that evaluation journey. So we started with very simple, um, you know, how did you find the, the session? Uh, how was the presenter? What did you learn? What would you like to learn more about? And this was provided to all the participants uh, by paper. So uh, I know that if I give you a link, and I'm very guilty of this, or someone gives me a link after a session, or even if they email it to me after, the likelihood of me filling it out really is dependent on my mood at that moment, on whether or not I needed a five-minute break to read something else. Um, but we're still talking about a 15% likelihood that I was going to respond to that. So our evaluations are, are actually still paper-based today because I'm guaranteed 100%, which means that there's a lot of scanned documents uh, in our archived uh, emails. Um, but those were kind of the, the first... Um, iteration of that. But then we realized, well, we also want to know what the host thought. You know, how was that processed? Is there something that we could improve on our end to make that easier? Uh, then we thought, okay, well, what about the volunteer? Uh, what did they think? Did they like that experience? Was there something that we missed that we could also be changing? Because with any program, you're always working to improve on it. It's never going to be perfect. And I think for us is we keep every year making these incremental uh, changes to, uh, to, to better that program. And these evaluations are very important and we read all of them. Um, and so now we have evaluations for all the participants and even for our school program, we have what we call an exit ticket. It's a very simple, simple, um, piece to like piece to it where there's like three questions versus you know maybe six or ten questions for the adults, um, and then of course we have uh, host evaluations and volunteer evaluations and hosts would be the organizations that are uh, that are hosting these sessions. Now um, the volunteer and the host or uh, host evaluations will move 
um, to a digital format uh, because, uh, well, we know who they are and we can hunt them down if we don't have them. But for participants, we will still maintain the paper format um, because we really want those uh, evaluations because it also helps us uh, and the host organization figure out what might be their next topics that their clients or customers are interested in, um, what were some of the key takeaways, um, and also it's great feedback for our volunteers so that they learn something. Perhaps, you know, their pacing was a little quick, they'll, they'll mention that, and that's something they can work on, and for them it's really um, a, a professional development in a way, and that's how I see it. Um, the other piece is a lot of times we've developed programming that has come out directly from the evaluations. Uh, we'll look at uh, the, the student evaluations for a minute um, where we had some of our um, uh, younger participants uh, tell us that they wanted to learn about pet ownership. And I'm like, well, that's adorable. Uh, so we then, uh, and it's, a, you know, an award-winning program now, but, you know, how the, the cost of owning a pet. Now, for parents who are listening on this, uh, we're not necessarily saying, you know, your child is going to come home and be like, hey, I now know how much it would cost for me to own a dog. That's definitely not the case. What we did in this case was build little um, kind of avatar stories where we had different children and different animals, and, they, and the children had to, um, had to be matched with the appropriate animal. Then we talked about responsibility and things like that, so they really understood that, you know, the responsibilities of a, of a dog versus a cat versus a gecko versus a horse. Uh, now, on a side note, when we're developing this this um, program, I really wanted us to have a, a dragon. Um, this totally happened. Uh, or a unicorn. Um, but when we did the math, it was like $36 million. And... For the dragon or the unicorn? For the dragon. <laughs> um, and the, and the, the, there was a whole story where they wrote with me as like the child uh, who lived in a tower uh, who had no friends and <laughs> but a dragon uh, but wanted a dragon so um, yeah that didn't work so unfortunately there's no <laughs> dragon in that story it uh, makes me very sad to this day um, but then there's uh, there's interesting conversations and I and I remember this very clearly when we had about six students in the class and this would have been a grade I think a grade seven or an eight class where there was all these comments about mortgages. And that was really strange, because I'm reading these and I said, okay, if you're grade seven and eight, I mean, you're, 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 you know, you're preteen at this point, but like, why would you be worried about mortgages? And why do you want to learn about mortgages? So we called the teacher and we said, hey, you know, we're reading these evaluations and for some reason there's like eight kids in the class who want to learn, learn about mortgages. We think that that's kind of an anomaly. And she had said that, in fact, uh, there were parents uh, in, in kind of their community which, you know, was kind of going through an economic downturn. And perhaps the conversations at home were really about the stress of paying for a mortgage, but the kids don't understand what that meant. Um, now, that kind of feedback doesn't necessarily get us to create a program about teaching kids at grade 7 and 8 about a mortgage, but what we did do is we sent that teacher information about mortgages to tell the class because clearly this was something that was causing a little bit of stress with the children and we really wanted to kind of provide that information and that, and that, um, um, that guidance, but we weren't necessarily going to create an individual program for that because obviously that, that's a lot more involved. 
But those are just some instances where in one case that became a program which we offer today like in terms of pet ownership. And then on the other hand is we knew that mortgages was a very important topic for this particular class. So we sent information for the teacher to be able to present to the children at that level, but we were not necessarily going to offer that at a national scale. Right. I think it's, it's very interesting that, that some of the programs have come out of ideas for the that that were generated by people who had participated, like some of our children's programming and, and the pet shop, um, the pet shop session. Have there been other examples of um, particular needs that have arisen from communities that have given birth to programs? Tons, tons. So, for example. Um, we have a small and medium business uh, program. There's eight sessions. Uh, but from there, we got the comment about, well, what if I'm only thinking about starting my business? What if I've only begun that journey? I'm not thinking about financing to this level yet. I'm not thinking about growth or financial ratios. I'm just trying to figure out how to get this business out of my basement. So we, we created what we now know today as the entrepreneurship program, where we have two specific programs for uh, kind of the startup community. Uh, we have programs for seniors because there was this question about, okay, well, we talk about estate planning, but what about budgeting when you're retired, right? You're almost going full circle from when you needed to budget early on to, you know, your working days where presumably you have more money. And then finally, when you're in that retirement segment, how you're going to budget. Uh, there's other examples where we look at the changes in the economy, right? When uh, Calgary was really kind of going through that and, you know, and arguably maybe today as well, uh, that whole downturn with the with oil, that there, one of our partners uh, reached out to us and said, look, we have a, a real big issue in our community where we're looking at um, clients, and this was the, uh, the, the Calgary Public Libraries, um, they're coming in and they're trying to figure out how to start again because they've been let go and, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out what's the best path forward. And so from there, we developed um, Survive and Thrive, which really talked about not only the, a little bit about kind of the, 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 the emotions that go through job loss, uh, but also some of the, uh, some of the ways to kind of get back on your feet um, whether that's looking at, um, you know, how to utilize savings, um, how to not to fall into debt while you're kind of trying to get back on your feet. If you were giving advice to a program just getting off the ground, where would you tell them to start and what are those sort of basic things they should focus on? I think, you know, there's a, there's a couple pieces to this. Uh, the first is seeing what already exists. You may not need to build your own program. Uh, there might already be resources that are available to you, and it may not just be, of course, our program, but uh, other programs that are available in the community or for that, um, or resources for that specific group. Uh, if there isn't, uh, then look at your own resourcing, right? Creating programs is extremely time-consuming, and it can be very expensive. Uh, when you look at the amount of research uh, that goes into just the development of our own programs plus the maintenance of it. Like financial information changes very quickly. Generally, uh, when a federal budget drops, I lose sleep over it because I know that there's 30% of our, of our sessions that are out of date, whether those are tax credits or 
um, you know, new TFSA limits, as an example, um, you know, perhaps it's going to go back to 10,000 next year, and then we have to kind of redraft all these things. So there's a lot of commitment that an organization needs to make before they embark on this uh, as one. Um, and then there's the piece of who is it for? Right. I mean, you really have to understand who you're building something for. And and that really then lends itself to then the content, the format, the location, the time that you deliver something. So understanding that you have all those pieces. So, for example, if you're dealing with people who um, work in the gig economy, right, every hour you uh, take up is an hour that they're not working to make ends meet, as an example. Or perhaps if you're talking to uh, parents, what are the, the optimal times that you can speak to parents? And do you have resources to, uh, to run programs after hours or only during the day? So those are a lot of questions that you really need to ask. But I think for a lot of organizations that are building their own programs, it's I think funding is going to be a big question, especially if you're a smaller outfit and whether or not you will have funding or have that begin the, the beginning funding to build that program and then the continual funding to maintain something like that. I mean, we're very lucky because uh, we have great volunteers and great experts that we can rely on to help us through that process. Um, but as an organization who's, who is beginning on that journey, it's to really understand, well, A, do I need it? B, who is it for? And C, can I build it? So you're talking, you know, we're really looking back almost a decade and a very particular financial situation. We saw um, the, the major recession in, in 2008, and you talked about looking ahead for five years, what the issues were, et cetera, when you were, when you were beginning. Um, we were looking at the move from um, what I think is one of the, the biggest changes in terms of the long-term financial well-being of Canadians, which is that move from defined benefit to defined contribution pension plans, that sort of thing. What do you see today as the, how has the landscape changed compared to when you began? What do you think are those issues now, if you're looking five years down the road, that, that we really need to be focusing on in terms of financial education? Well, I think it really depends who we're, who we're talking about. I think you know, if we're talking about uh, the younger generation, I'm very concerned with debt um, because when you look at, you know, social media, it really drives us to consume. Um, and also their opportunities are very different than what, um, you know, the generation now that is probably in senior roles in organizations, et cetera, like what you would call Gen X. Um, and so, you know, they have, again, that income volatility plus, uh, that piece where they're in many cases consuming a lifestyle that they can't really afford. So there's that piece, which I'm concerned about in terms of their long-term welfare. Because remember, when you save a dollar for retirement at 20 versus a dollar at 30 versus a dollar at 40, it is a humongous, and I, I know that's not a word, but I'm using it, um, difference in terms of what that means when you retire. Now, if I'm in my 50s, early 60s, and I'm hoping to retire with a nest egg that I've built over the course of my career, I'm very concerned if there's a recession. Right, when you look at interest rates are, are, are kept steady because inflation rates um, are, are still holding generally at 2%. Um, 
Um, and of course, because of all the debt levels, you know, gen generally the, the federal banks, whether that's the Bank of Canada, whether that's the, the federal bank in the U.S., they can't, they can't increase interest rates because then there's a, a problem with your average uh, citizen, Canadian, American, et cetera, that can't make those payments. But if we are hit with a recession and that money that you've put aside and invested for the last 40 years starts to diminish and then you have increased inflation, then I would be really worried about what I'm actually retiring on. Um, and, and then when you, if I look at the, the younger generation, which we would call like Gen Z, um, you know, what economy they're going into. Right? And, that, and that's really kind of maybe a little bit beyond the financial literacy conversation, but what jobs are going to be available to them? How is the landscape changing for them? If, are we going to automate things? I mean, AI keeps me up at night. I'm not going to lie. Um, and it's one of those really scary things about what is going to happen when you look at the evolution of financial products even and the roles that they're playing and how disrupted even our banking institutions may be. Uh, there's just all these issues that are out there, and I think it really depends when you look at the different age groups and what those issues could be. It's very complex. It's not kind of, oh, I'm just worried about consumer debt or I'm worried about the one trillion that we owe in mortgages, et cetera. I think it really depends on what the individual need is and at what stage of life they are. You talked about disruption in the banking system. We're seeing disruption at every level and everything, in including disruption in how we communicate and how we share information. At CPA Canada, we've been very committed to, and I think we'll continue to be very committed to this in-person delivery. And you know, last year we reached over 60,000 people with our in-person delivery. Um, but what are you seeing in terms of, what, are your, what is your sense about how best to communicate with these different demographic groups, different styles of learners, where you're seeing communications platforms changing so quickly, you're seeing attention spans diminishing very quickly. I, I think it's really interesting that we talk about, you know, doing sessions of this length or that length. And I think of myself at when, when the smartest thing I ever did when I graduated was I took a course in, it was called Nancy Thompson's Investing for Women. And but it was an eight-week course of, of like three hours a night. And in and the, and the, the first class, you learned that, yes, it's the same as investing for men. But it was a very interesting, uh, um, that kind of delivery, right, that, that you would accept taking a course that, you know, you're start to, is effectively talking about 24 hours of teaching to go over this stuff. Whereas today, people want things very quickly, very immediately. So what are you seeing in terms of that kind of disruption on the communication and education front? That is the one point, I'm using inflation, $1.2 million question. Um, it's, it's a challenge, I'm not going to lie. Um, I, think, I think there's definite value in in-person delivery in a world where we are so connected that I feel we become disconnected. But again, that's a very philosophical uh, question to ponder for maybe another podcast. But in terms of your, your, your question, we have to look at a number of things. I mean, yes, the, the, the pace in which we are changing is incredibly quick. And so what we try to do is we, we try to take uh, different approaches to things. Um, and we know that we have to communicate uh, with the younger generation much, much different, even in terms of how we tell those stories, how we relate to them. And, and in our, when you look at our student programs, you're going to notice that we try to find examples that resonate with 
that age group. And the one thing I've learned about working on those programs is that, my gosh, their tastes change. It's like the next week, and it's like, no, that was last week. They're no longer cool. What do you do with that, right? So it's, it's very, very challenging. And so I think we continue to try to push the boundaries of you know, of, of, of where it makes sense for us to, to, to play in, right? So these different areas. And we continue to, to really try to engage things like social um, when we're trying to get that message out and even crafting that message, right? What is, what is going to pique someone's interest? Because that's also really hard. Just because I'm playing in the same pool doesn't mean anybody's going to pay attention to me. So maybe I need a pink ball, right? Or maybe I need a, a floaty. Who knows? Um, but it's this idea that we continuously try to uh, change those messages. And we measure a lot of what we do, especially in a digital age where it's easier to do. It's to understand where and what people are doing. And if we understand that journey, we continue to kind of, let's say, let's try this because we know that this is um, getting the action that we really want. Um, but really for us, it's, uh, it's a trial and error. And if anybody had the answer to that, please call me. <laughs> One of the things that I think has really changed over the last decade in the area of, of financial literacy, um, financial education, is the move from a focus on education itself, developing knowledge itself, to trying to understand whether that's enough. Um, we have a sense that we know that financial education is necessary if we want to support Canadians to making better financial decisions. Um, we're not sure it's sufficient, um, that people do not always, in fact, act in their best interest. They do not always, in fact, act on what they know. Um, and so there's been a major movement in the area of um, uh, behavioral economics and the recognition, the recognition of the importance of that. Um, things like, you know, Richard Toller getting the, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in, in economics for his foundational work in behavioral economics. What do you see, um, and, and can you talk to us a little bit about the trends that you're seeing and how that changes um, how and what we teach and how we think about how that changes behavior? I think there's multiple components to that. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of studies out there that, that go both ways, right? Mm -hmm. there, are, there are studies that say, oh, financial education doesn't work. There are other studies who say, yes, it does work. And I'm going to use the simple analogy that when someone's learning to walk, they don't start and walk, right? You first realize you have legs. <laughs> then you say, oh, I can use them, and I can see other people standing. Then you wobble your way, you might crawl, you might half stand, and it's a process. And I want to say that education is the same. So when we look at a journey someone must take, is that first of all, they have to have a willingness to, take, to be on that journey and to understand that this is something they need to do. And that is very intrinsic for people. It's not something that I can say, yes, I want you to have a better handle on your finances. Nobody can make you do that. You need to want that first. But now, with, with programs like ours and other uh, programs of our, uh, some of our partners and, and others, um, if they're looking for that information, it's available to them, right? So they first need to discover they have legs, so their want, and then they start, they, they start on that journey. But when we look at you know, behavioral change, I mean, I, I know it's not popular, but for me, I always equate it to a diet. Um, it's really hard. You, you might think, okay, well, if I eat well every day, that's great. And, you know, it's good for my health. But do we all really? 
you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure I had fried chicken for lunch today, not gonna lie. Um, and I know it's not good for me, but it's understanding that difference between the choices you are making. No one says that just because you know better that you will always do better, but the difference is that you know. And I think for me, that's the critical component. If you're gonna make bad choices, hey, you know, nobody is perfect. But I want you to recognize you're making a bad choice because that inevitably is going to change the decisions you make after. Okay. So do you have any final words of advice that you'd like to give to people uh, working on financial literacy, education, and delivery? This is very important work. And I want to thank everybody who's involved in this space because it only really works when we're all working towards that same goal and understanding that partnerships is key to success. It's not just about us being on an island and owning a space. It's about how do we collaborate to strengthen the work that we are all trying to achieve. This has been another episode of Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, brought to you by Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes.